Welcome to the Ed Epley Experience, 20 minutes that simplifies the complex job of managing and leading people and inspires you to take action on what you probably already know to build and sustain a smart and healthy business. Here's your host, Ed Epley, to introduce this week's guest and business leader. Welcome to the Ed Epley Experience, your chance to get expert advice from people that I've met, people that I do work with, and in some cases, people I've partnered with to help others. And in this episode of the Ed Epley Experience, I'm excited because we're going to get to dive into a subject that if you've listened to more than one of my podcasts, you know I'm a big fan of boards, in particular board of advisors. So our guest today is an expert on boards. As I was thinking about how to introduce him, I was thinking about the impact he's had on me. Number one, he is a calming presence. He has a style about him that puts people at ease. And he also, in the way he speaks, and I think you'll pick up on this, he causes you to actually slow down in your thinking. And he asks such good questions that oftentimes you may not have a quick answer at hand. And so consequently, I think he makes people think. And above all, he's just a really decent, good human being. Welcome to the Ed Epley Experience, my friend Jim Brown from up north. (laughs) So good to be with you, Ed. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, how has the last six to 18 months been for you and the folks up north in Canada? How are things today? We are more slow in climbing out of the impact of COVID. So only last week did we move out of lockdown to stage one of reopening, which is not very much that's reopened, really. So we still are limited to like 10 people meeting outside. And mm-hmm. I, I haven't had a haircut for nine weeks, Ed. So. Neither have I. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And for any of you that are listening who know my hairstyle, you'll get that joke. (laughs) Jim, you're looking good. I don't see a man bun on you yet. No, no. (laughs) Probably not. Not back to my teens. (laughs) (laughs) Well, listen, we should probably get into the topic about boards and what the pros and cons and goods and bads. But before we even get into that, how does somebody become an expert in dealing with boards? What's the journey that brought you to where you are? It starts over 25 years ago when we started this consulting company, Strive, and we were asking ourselves, well, what brings us together? I started with two other partners, and we did a bit of an inventory of everything that we had done to that point. And we realized, oh, wait, we've all been on boards. We've all led boards. We've all reported as the senior executive to boards. And what's happening to help boards? There wasn't much back then. Right. Um, so we decided, huh, this would be a need that, that should be met. We were foolish, Ed. It turns out that people don't pay for what they need. They pay for what they want. <laughs> so it was an interesting journey in the early days before people even really knew what governance was, actually. But yeah, so now 25 years have passed, and we've done a lot of work with a lot of boards. And you've worked with both for-profit, not-for-profits, Correct. Correct. Lots of both. But let's remember that for every for-profit board, there are 10 non-profits out there. I would not have known that. Now that you say it, it kind of makes sense, but I would not have known that. That's an interesting statistic to just to noodle on. And as always, you're making me think and, and throwing me off my game already. I, <laughs> I, I appreciate that, Jim. In the work that you have done, how much of it has been with boards of advisors versus boards of directors? 
Well, let me say that most great companies have both. They might not call it exactly that, but they realize that there's a place for both. Legally, almost every organization, in fact, every organization that is incorporated legally has a board. Right. But let's also acknowledge that probably half of them don't even think about that. Because if a guy owns a company, he's legally the board. Yes. So they would likely more often have an advisory board, which is an important contribution. And the governance board is something that really just happens behind the scenes, invisible to them. When he makes decisions... He's the board, so it's a board decision. So would you say the biggest difference between an advisory board or board of advisors and a board of directors is boards of directors have a responsibility for governance that a board of advisors does not? Yeah, so let's take that further. Boards of directors actually have the obligation to make decisions that direct and protect the company. Advisory boards don't have the power to make any binding decisions. They, they provide wonderful input, and then the person or group that they're advising decides what to do with that. It, but here's another consequential difference. Yeah, please. The people who are on governing boards are legally liable for those decisions that they make. Right. Whereas the people on advisory boards have no liability. And, and this is something to really play to your advantage because – the the very best people are wise and wealthy because they've been so effective in their history. And then that means they're going to be very, re, uh, well, reluctant might be, they'll be very cautious about joining a governing board because now they become potentially targets for people going after the company. Right. So I've found that that I can help organizations bring people to an advisory board with huge horsepower much more easily than we can convince them to be on the governing board. Uh, uh, in my journey and, and work with boards and being member uh, a member of a number of boards, um, it was with that understanding that you just described about the fiduciary risk and liability that mm -hmm. goes with a board of directors <clears throat> that I have leaned very heavily of, of being involved only in advisory boards. I, I just, it, I've, I'm at a point in my career where I don't need more risk and, right. <laughs> and responsibility than I already have. Yeah. And, and people that understand the risk uh, often make those decisions. People that uh, are just good hearted and don't understand the risk don't realize how messy it can get. And yeah. let's not understate how messy it can get. Like, Ed, are you familiar with Neighborhood Watch? Oh, I am. Yeah, I know of so it. So I know of a, a local organization, Neighborhood Watch, um, that had a board. And that board, it was purely volunteer. Nobody was getting paid anything ever. They got sued. And the, the board didn't have the sophistication to realize that that was a real risk. So consequently, the individuals on the board ended up each having to pay, pretty sure it was more than $25,000 of uh, wow. damages that were assigned. Wow. Which, which only is another reminder that no good deed goes unpunished. <laughs> yeah, that's, it's a scary world we live in in that regard. Yeah. <laughs> How long have advisory boards formally been around uh, in, a, in a formal? You know, I, if you look and you read back in history, 
uh, most uh, executives have found an advisory uh, uh, entity to support them yes. in some way, shape, or form. But but when when did the yeah. Uh, nomenclature when did the name start to be part of the lexicon that we we're going to have a board of advisors any idea um i i don't think that it goes back this far but um i believe that the bible is the greatest book of wisdom and i <laughs> i think that uh if we've read the bible we're familiar with stories of david and his royal advisors so yeah. you know it goes back thousands of years that the concept happened I think that the term advisory board quickly came after the the term governing board was was established, which is more in the 200, 300, not even 300 years ago. Okay. But but I want to tackle this because it turns out that I've got a pretty strong opinion about the label advisory board. I'm against it. And let me explain why. Yeah. We've already talked about how Technically, the advisory board doesn't have the power to make decisions. But the problem with the word board is it infers decision-making. It infers power. Sure does. So to invite someone to an advisory board is almost setting them up for frustration, um, unmet expectations. So I would much prefer that we call it an advisory council or the president's council or something like that, get the word board out of the terminology to eliminate the impression that there's a decision-making role. And hence, uh, that would minimize some of the reluctance that a lot of business owners have in uh, forming this group of uh, individuals because they fear they're giving up control of their business. See, you're making another important point, Ed, that that lots of... uh, entrepreneurs are aware that there are lots of people out there that know more than they do and they could benefit from that. But the notion of being subjected to a board, it's almost like, well, geez, could they vote me off the island? This is my own business and they could kind of tell me I don't fit anymore. I don't want to take that risk. And that would be a reason why you would want to be very cautious. I'm not saying you, you should never have a governing board in that context, but you would be cautious about it because you can get almost all of the benefit from the people in an advisory capacity uh, without that that risk of ownership and structure. Yeah, yeah. and giving up control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I agree. Uh, if if I was only going to have one, I know which I would have. I, I can tell you that. Sure. Uh, in your opinion, uh, and I'm. Uh, I don't think I'm asking you to violate any confidences by asking this, uh, but what percent of boards in general would you say are highly effective, either of either kind? And maybe, maybe if you want to differentiate between uh, mm-hmm. advisory versus uh, directors, that's fine. Advisory boards are more are are more effective than governing boards because the role is simpler. The people who come on them are usually much more sophisticated. Why would you get someone that doesn't know much to be on your advisory board, right? And the problem with governing boards is that people just don't really understand what's expected. The line that I've often used, Ed, is that greeters at Walmart get more orientation to their role than almost any board member ever has had. 
I, I think you got to say that again. <laughs> I, I, if you don't mind doing it, I, yeah. I, think, the, I yeah. think the audience needs to hear that again. Just think about it. Greeters at Walmart get more orientation than almost any board member would ever get. And the problem is that we think that it's insulting to tell board members what we expect from them. Surely they must know this. How else could they have risen to such level of success and notoriety for us to want to have them on a board? But it's a setup for, for lots of trouble. So uh, you didn't give me a percent. Would you say that? Would you say that twenty five percent of boards are highly effective? It, it's somewhere between twenty five and fifty. And the good news is that it's climbed notably in the last twenty years. Twenty years ago, I would say it would have been ten percent at best. Uh, the old boys club was so pronounced yeah. twenty years ago. It's it's less common. It's not. It's, it certainly hasn't been eliminated. But more and more people are aware that that's just not going to cut it in this in today's world. Yeah, and I think you're never going to get rid of it because there's going to be some owners that want yes people around them. Yeah, yeah. And so they're going to recruit friends, uh, acquaintances, people that they think are going to tell them what they want to hear. I think so. I. I um, and and arguably the business exists to serve the interests of the owners. So I mean, if that's what they want to do, they can. It's just probably not as sustainable as another model. It's it's not as sustainable. And I will admit to you that I don't have like I I can only tell you data of what I've read. It's not my experiential data. In and that's because I won't work with boards that won't change. Like a fundamental condition for me taking on a client is that they're hungry to improve. And if they don't recognize that there's some potential changes that need to be made, then I know that I'm going to be wasting my time and they're going to be wasting their money. So I just don't engage in those situations. Certainly it's a wonderful filter to, to use to decide whether to work with them or not. Do you think in most instances, when you get invited in, is it because of the, the president or CEO or owner, or is it because somebody on the board says we need help? Who, who's who's the, the the voice crying for that? Well, let's remember that there's one CEO and there's six or eight or ten board members. So there's, there's more likely the chance that a board member is going to be the initiator. Okay. But on the contrary, like to the other side – no one is more impacted by an ineffective board than the CEO. Right. right. So no one stands to gain more by boards being effective than the CEO. Right. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Um, in general, what makes for a great board member? One, I think the fundamental thing is that they understand the difference between overseeing a business and operating a business. And that's not a simple thing, because when you think about it, Ed, all of the things that make someone a great candidate to a board become the the things they shouldn't be doing. Like, if you're a CEO and you've effectively found good people to be on your team and created reward structures to make sure that they're working well and mapped out a vision that is clear so that everyone can charge toward it and and then really been hands-on in solving problems, 
your tendency is to think that that might be why people would want you on the board. But in fact, when you become a board member, your role is very different than mm -hmm. the operational role. So if we can't distinguish between those, then we will never be a good board member. We'll just be, with the best of intentions, meddling in <laughs> management's work. Uh, I I was with a I was on a in a board meeting not too long ago, and uh, w one of the pieces of advice one of my fellow board members gave our CEO was you have to stop tinkering with the business, and he said the reason I'm telling you this is because I tinkered with my business way too long, and as a result I didn't realize how difficult I was making for the business to scale. Uh -huh. And and he said so. So I'm just telling you. I know you well enough. You got to stop tinkering. And, and I thought that that was somebody who clearly has grown into the role, right? He, yeah, yeah. He he was understanding the difference. Right. So then, so beyond distinguishing between what's a governance approach versus what's a operating approach, I would say that we need people who can think strategically, uh, people who like to to look at the big picture and actually think through the the possibilities like there's a lot of what if postulating that needs to happen mm -hmm. and if you get most fulfillment out of kind of executing you're not going to enjoy board work it's going to be too slow for you um, you also should be good at building consensus why do you say that the the problem with lots of boards is that everyone's opinion, like most people sit around the table, they are not, uh, you know, weak leaves blowing in the wind. They are, they are pretty strong willed. And so they're going to speak their opinion with real conviction. Well, if you have seven people speaking different opinions with conviction, that's not really helping. You got to land that plane somehow. So, the ability to express your perspective, but actually believe that there might be something you you don't yet see and notice that in other comments. And then I'm going to even use the word admit it. Mm -hmm. So, oh, that's a good point you just made, Ed. Uh, I hadn't even thought about that. Right. Which kind of changes my, my own opinion a little bit. I think maybe the way we would incorporate both my thinking and yours would be to go here. You see what I'm talking about? And right. <clears throat> if if we don't if we don't see ourselves moving in the conversation, we're not helping the conversation go where it needs to go to serve the organization. In um, you got me thinking now. Um, you mentioned boards as big as you know six, seven, eight people. Most of the advisory boards of which I've been a part are relatively small. Yeah, and and I think that that's wise. Although let let's just admit that advisory councils can be differently used. And I've worked with lots of people who have a council of five or six, right. but they only meet once a year. The CEO calls the individuals on council often for yeah. specific input. So the, the, the format of council is more one-on-one -on -one conversations than actual collective discussions. Two thoughts here. Number one, I absolutely agree with the, um, the premise, and, and I know that uh, I think the best – board performance, I'm sorry, council performance comes from uh, the executive of the organization who has the council reaching out to them individually as as warrants. And in some cases, um, I've even seen, uh, again, in, in some instances where the executive 
intentionally schedules meetings with each mm-hmm. council member individually on a rotating basis just to just to talk. Yeah. It's it it's not with a formal agenda, it's not with any specific business issue in mind, although it can can be discussed, but it's a whole idea of just to get that perspective and to and to pull themselves back out of the the day-to-day operation of the business and talk to somebody who's thinking probably more strategically more often than are they. And it's likely gone, you know, a few miles down the road for ahead of them. So, yes. Yeah. You've here are some of the problems I've got right now. Have you ever had any of those? Oh boy. Yes. Let's talk about that. Here's what I had happen. Here's how we handled it. Here's what I wish I had done differently. Yep. Those kinds of things. What keeps most executives, owners, presidents, whatever the title, from creating a council of advisors? Other than, other than the fact that they think they might have to give, uh, give up control, what would be the other factors? Sadly, I'm going to say the biggest one is uh, lack of humility. And maybe it's, maybe it's uh, better expressed as falling prey to the world's projection that if you're not figuring it out yourself, you're not good enough. There's, there's some weird stuff going on in our society that we think everybody that anybody that's really good is a superhero. Anybody that isn't a superhero isn't that good. So yes, that's interesting. They're afraid they're, they're going to look like less if they have to get the help from others. In fact, that would be one of the biggest things that we had to come overcome in our consulting practice at in the early days, the people on boards were loath to admit they needed a consultant because they were afraid that that admitted that they probably weren't a good enough board. That makes sense. But then Enron happened and WorldCom (laughs) happened and the whole mindset shifted to where people realized, wait a minute, anyone that doesn't get a consultant now and then to get some help probably is irresponsible. So the, that was a, that was a huge gift to, to us. Yeah. It went from being a scarlet letter uh, to uh, being more of a seal of approval, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a big so, shift. So that would humility would be a thing, but then there's this other factor, which is just the misunderstanding, the the fear that it's going to cost a lot, and how can I justify it? You know, it's an un uncertain return and a projected outlay. But here's the crazy thing, and I'm sure that you've seen the same thing, Matt. People get to a stage in their life where they're they're now ready to leave a legacy. And they are not looking to get paid a bunch of money. They're looking for meaningful work to make deposits in people that make a difference in the world. Right. I have found for myself and for lots of clients that I've helped find good advisors that they can find people who don't want to be paid. They're not asking to be paid anything. There's no liability, so they don't have to kind of justify risk. It's really about a few hours every couple of months or less. And if you really demonstrate that you're hungry to learn, that you're thankful for what you you learn, that in itself is plenty of reward. And then if you pay for a really nice meal it's like, it's kind of like the person feels like they won and that that's all they're looking for i feel the need to compensate an advisory council member is more a demonstration 
of the importance you're placing on it. And I think it makes it more difficult than for the executive, the CEO, to either, one, push a board or council meeting off, mm-hmm. and number two, um, to not listen. Agreed. Agreed. I, I, I think, I, think uh, I fully support the mindset that a great advisory council member will have is the, they're not doing this for money. Uh-huh. And in truth, if they were to charge you what their time and council is worth, <laughs> you probably couldn't afford it. <laughs> That's the thing. Like when you think about it, you know, the people that I've had the privilege of having in my circle as advisors, oh my goodness, they have so much net worth, so much income that, you know, an hour of time would be, I can't even calculate it. It would be prohibitive. Yes. (laughs) So for us to say, well, can we give you $500 for an hour that it wouldn't even come? It's almost insulting. Right. Whereas if you say, can we, can I take you to a really great supper or can we play a round of golf on a course that you've never tried before? Right. And while we're, while we're playing, we're talking, Uh, these kinds of things are what I find most of these people consider to be a valuable yeah. an appreciated recognition or expression of of value. I think there's a reason we call them honorariums. Yeah. Because yeah. they 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 certainly are not fees in the sense of traditional fees. I I I didn't think about this till we got started. Um you and I both spent time together with the table group. Mm-hmm. And Which both was great. of us yeah and and it's how we met. But I I I didn't think about this until we were underway today. Are great councils or even great boards great teams? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting question. There's still two schools of thought on this. I will admit to you that I'm steeped pretty deeply in the team mindset. So I believe great councils are great teams. If we understand that the team is trying to make something happen, if the team is going to challenge each other respectfully, courageously, and and these are all points of good teamwork that I know you agree with. But when you say we need to be a team, sadly, to some people, that means that I should be a little more cautious, maybe not share my view. It might be too confronting to somebody else's statement. I disagree with that. I, I think that if we see, no, here's here's what we're trying to make happen. We're trying to deliver the the best perspective and wisdom to this leader that's possible so that he or she is positioned to make the best decision for the organization going forward. And we're not going to hold back. Even if they don't like what we're, what we're saying, we're going to give it to them, not to knock them over, not to make them look bad. But to help them, then I think it's better if it's done as a team effort than if we think uh, we're all there to look like the superstar. Yeah. So a lot of the principles that Pat Lencioni talks about in the five dysfunctions of a team, you would say absolutely are, are uh, applicable to a, a council or a board. I, I do think they are. Now, again, this is if they are meeting as a group. If, right. If the primary communication is just one-on-one, then it's much less of an issue. But if they're meeting as a group, 
then the dynamics of that conversation, and oh my goodness, I think back to some of the conversations that I've had with our advisory council in years gone by, and I think, oh, if anybody was just looking in, they would think it was mean. <laughs> because I had people who were, you know, hit me right between the eyes with, Jim, you say you're doing this, but I'm not seeing this or this or this. Uh, are, are you really pushing this forward? Or are you right. are you coasting? And and I know these people well enough that I I do not take that as um, be demeaning. Right. It, it was it was respectfully challenging, mm -hmm. and and then they're going to be in the conversation to help me do something with what they are hoping that I would see. So, but that doesn't happen unless there's a we're working at this together. Right. The more that the people around the table understand each other, value the perspective they bring, the more they can mine the goodness from each other for whatever it is we're talking about. I was in a, a conversation. Oh, this was a, a board of governors, but there was a new member at the table. And I was asking them to talk about risk in the organization. And I said, before we get into the assessment of risk in the organization, I want you to do a little assessment of expertise or risk in your group. Take a minute and write down the names of the people. Say, let's just say two names of the people around the table that you think maybe you have the most to bring to this conversation. Interesting. No one mentioned this person who had been on the board for about six months. I had read all of their bios, which is on their website. And I had learned that this woman was the global, had been the global head of risk for a international <laughs> bank. But nobody else on the board knew that. It, it, it was right there on the website. It was available. Right. They, had, they had neither read it, nor had they had a conversation to even learn about this person who had been sitting with them for six months. You see what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, it's it goes like, back. It goes back to your Walmart greeter uh, yeah, situation. Yeah. So it's just it's it's actually irritating. It's like you got all this wealth of wisdom sitting at the table, but especially there was there was some gender dynamic happening here, right? So there were men speaking with confidence like they owned the world, and speaking over this woman who probably could run circles around them about risk, but she didn't have the need to prove that. Yeah. In some regards, probably too early in her tenure for her to speak up and raise her hand and say, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I have something to offer on this. Do you oftentimes do assessments of the council's performance? Do you ask them to self-assess their own performance? Absolutely. There's kind of layers. Like I think the right thing is for everyone to self-assess just personally. Right annually. And for advisory councils, we actually say that no one should commit for more than a year. There should be an invitation to reconsider at the end of a year from both sides, frankly. Yes. And that assessment should be a tool that helps them. So, you know, you'd ask questions like, did I bring concrete value to the conversations this year? Did I see suggestions that I made get implemented this year? Is the chemistry between the others on council and myself a positive one? And these are just a few. And I wouldn't have, you know, 20. I would have 
six or eight questions, maybe. Right, right. And the last question is, do I think it would be best to continue for another year? And I will admit that there's there's been times when I've been very disappointed when great people have chosen not to continue, but it's their prerogative. And it can be about all kinds of things, right? Oh, yeah. They might just feel like I gave you enough for a year. That's that's what I can commit and I'm moving on to something else. Or I've got other things in life that demand more time. It's not necessarily a vote against the CEO. It's a decision to lead their own lives. Oh, yeah. And, and um, I always say that we serve, first of all, at the executive or owner's pleasure. But the truth is we serve at each other's pleasure. Right. It has to be mutual to really be effective. Look, we're, we're running up against a, our time constraint that we try to, to keep these podcasts in. And the fact that we've even gone over is a great indication of all the value you're offering to our listeners. You have a book called The Imperfect Board Member. It, just describe briefly what that book is about for the audience. Sure. Well, it's written as a story because I believe stories are the easiest way for people to really integrate understanding of issues. It's a story of a CEO of a early stage company who gets involved on a nonprofit board. And to his shock, he's learning more about governance from the nonprofit board than his own board. And it's really just a journey of experiencing the key issues regarding making boards work well and ultimately, it exposes what we call the seven disciplines of governance excellence. Yeah. Having read it and having referred it to others, I can tell the audience it's a book that I think if you have either a desire to be part of a council or a board to serve or whether you're going to organize one, it's really, really helpful to get those perspectives that Jim offers in the book. So I would highly recommend it. The second thing is if people want to reach you, Jim, what's the best way for them to do that? If they just visit our website, which is strive.com, they will find contact information or they can just send an email to me, jim at strive.com. We keep things pretty simple in our shop. And uh, he will respond, folks. I can tell you that. Last <laughs> yeah. ask that I would make of you, if somebody is contemplating going down the path of creating a council or a board, what would be the one thing you would tell them to do above all else? Take some time to identify what you really need to learn from people who've been down the road further than you have. If you don't begin with an appetite to learn, then people are going to wonder why you're asking them to contribute. A good suggestion is talk to somebody that's used an advisory council for a number of years, and you'll probably get no end of examples of oh my goodness, the things that I learned from my advisory council, like right. this and this and this and this. And you realize, holy smokes, I could benefit like that too. Like, I don't know how to get in front of some of the people that I long to be my clients, or I don't know how to overcome the problem that we've got with retaining the best people in our organization. Well, there are people that have figured this out and have done it well for decades there's lots that you can learn, but they need to be on the tip of your tongue. Mm -hmm. Or these people, when they talk to you about why they should be an advisor, they're going to wonder how it could be useful, and therefore it's a waste of their time. Yep. He's Jim Brown. He is part of Strive and the organization that helps councils and boards be more effective. 
He's a friend. He's graced us with wonderful thoughts and ideas. Jim, it's always good to talk with you, especially under these circumstances. Thanks so much for being part of the Ed Epley experience. It's been a pleasure, Ed. I enjoy it. I thank you for what you're doing to serve all the leaders that are listening. Be well. Thank you for listening to the Ed Epley Experience. For more information on building a more sustainable, smarter, and healthier business, visit www.theepleygroup.com for resources, tips, and Ed's latest blogs. That's theepleygroup.com. Plus, take a free assessment at theepleygroup.com slash assessment to find out how you measure up as a highly skilled and accomplished manager and where to focus on improving your skills.